This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is March 9th, 2023. One year ago, we came to you with an episode that we called Why We're Still Talking About Women on Boards. During that episode, we discussed some moderately good news about the progress of women in corporate positions of power. Now, that was coming off of a noticeable slowdown on that front in 2020. This year's version of MSCI's annual Women on Boards report shows that the rate of growth continued to recover in 2022. There were some notable bright spots and other spots that were, well, not so bright. As our guests this week all reminded us, there's still plenty of work to do. But let's start with some good news. We've been monitoring companies' inclusion of women in the leadership position since 2009, and we've been doing that research by sector, by market, for quite a few years. That's our first guest today. My name is Olga Emelianova, and uh, I lead MSCI ESG research team focused on impact and screening. What we found more recently is that during the period of 2020-2021, during the global pandemic crisis, of course, uh, quite a lot of economies and companies been affected in many ways, and one of those ways was the reduction in the in the in the rate of growth of women participation in the leadership positions. So we were quite cautious to to see how the situation evolves and one of the key findings was that looks like the markets are recovering from that stress and uh, we've seen an uptick um, in the inclusion of women in both the board directorship roles as well as in the senior executive roles. But perhaps the most notable finding in 2022 was the reaching of this 30% tipping point in the developed countries uh, among the large cap companies. Based on our previous studies, we identified 30% female representation on board as a point, a tipping point at which we can start to see the, uh, the results or the impact of the diversity, a point at which we are seeing greater shareholder return for the diverse uh, boards, for uh, companies with the diverse representation on boards, also high return on equity. Many companies have 30% threshold women representation on their own board. But looking collectively across all of the directorship seats, across nearly 1,500 largest global firms, 31% of all of those seats were held by women in 2022. But Olga continued. There is a quite a drastic uh, difference between the developed markets and uh, emerging markets. If we look into the country representation by the number of women on board, European companies are certainly leading. So, in fact, 15 of the top 20 countries by percentage of women on board are European countries. U.S. is uh, number 21 um, of the of the list of the countries, and uh, many emerging markets companies are still struggling to have at least one woman on board. And we've seen for some of those countries regulators stepping in and setting that as a as a mandatory quota, as a mandate to to have at least one female representation. We found that 
58% of the U.S.-based companies within our coverage, and it's nearly 600 U.S. firms had at least 30% women on their board. But when compared to other countries, I would say that it falls somewhere in the middle. Did you catch that? The U.S. came in at number 21. Now, I should note, that 58% of U.S.-based companies in MSCI's coverage had reached that 30% tipping point, which, as Olga explained... Which is really great number, I would say. Relatively speaking, though, not such a great number. Our next guest highlighted that point as well. My name is Shweta Narasimhadevra, and I joined State Street Global Advisors as their global head of product covering the institutional and... ETF franchises, global companies exhibited a recovery in the growth rate of female representations on boards after a slowdown in 2020. However, this growth rate is primarily attributable to steady increases across non-U.S. companies in developed markets, whereas U.S. companies have continued for three consecutive years to show a slowdown in the rate of women on boards. In 2022, 38% of the constituents of the MSCI ACWI index, many of which were subject, in fact, to mandatory gender quotas, surpassed a critical mass of at least 30% women representation at the board level, up from 33% in 2021. We also found it fascinating, right, the contrast between female representation at the CEO level versus the CFO level in the in the findings, and particularly in the information technology sector. 4% of companies had a female CEO, while 21% had a female CFO. So, I mean, I think this is a really encouraging sign in some ways. And it shows that women are clearly capable of managing and, you know, the financing of these companies. Then my hope would be, right, that the that this is a breeding ground for future women CEOs, you know, in years to come. That reminded me of something that had stuck with me since the first time I spoke with Shweta. So I asked her about it. When we spoke last week in preparation for for this interview, you pointed out how the percentage of women coming out of MBA programs is actually much higher than the percentage of women on boards in this latest report. Can can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. This was data sourced from, you know, a Times um, magazine piece in, in November of 2021. The percentage of women in leading MBA programs has inched upwards in the last decade, right, from 31% or so in 2011 to 41% and more in 2021. So that's a 10 percentage point increase. The uptick matters because graduating from such programs can propel women's careers and lead to more leadership opportunities in the workforce. Yet, if you look at, you know, the sort of the reported stats in MSCI's Women on Boards report, the percentage of director seats held by women is at 24.5% in 2022, right, amongst the constituents of the MSCI Alpha Index, up from only about like 22.6% in 21. Women make up just 8.2% of Fortune 500 CEOs. And the pandemic, I believe, forced many women out of the workforce, further hindering their ability to reach those leadership positions. So clearly there is that, you know, that dichotomy, if you will, right, between the highly educated, right, and potential future leaders versus what we're seeing in the numbers across these organizations. We'll get into how companies can and have worked to bridge that dichotomy a bit later. For now, 
let's spend some time on the why. First off, I mean, I think the unequal performance of companies in the same industry and country suggests that gender, racial, and ethnic diversity are actually competitive differentiators. I mean, the moral case for work, you know, workforce diversity was always clear, right? But a recent study by McKinsey found that it may actually makes business sense to do this too. Top quartile companies for racial and ethnic diversity they found were 35% more likely to have financial returns above their national industry medians. Companies in the top quartile for gender diversity, 15%. Bottom quartile companies were less likely than average to achieve high financial returns. So I think, you know, there's the point around data. Let's dig into the why a bit more with our third guest for today. I'm Tia Counts. I am the Chief Responsibility and Diversity Officer at MSCI. MSCI's recent research report on the topic shows us that in the last decade, a growing number of global jurisdictions have adopted quotas for the inclusion of women on corporate boards, and they've established disclosure requirements. It's obvious that including women on boards, on corporate boards, is a, has a compliance uh, element. Um, that said, I think the research also posits that companies may seek to increase women on boards for strategic reasons, and gender inclusion and, co- and corporate governance might be uh, correlated with, with positive financial performance. So I should say that although there's no clear uh, causal link that's been established, several studies found that significant correlations between the presence of women on boards and uh, strong financial performance using various financial metrics. And this was clearly stated in the Women on Boards report. Also, the report finds that companies with a high percentage of women on boards also perform better on all three of the ES and G uh, pillars and environmental, social and governance pillars. On the other hand, there's also a common sense reason. Intuition tells us that greater diversity will lead to a wider, more nuanced discourse and potentially better decision making. This is a result of rich dialogue that follows from having a diversity of thought and perspective, which are often gained from a diversity of lived experiences. This, of course, extends to other diverse identities, including race, ethnic diversity, neurodiversity, gender diversity, including members of the LGBTQ plus community, uh, also including, of course, gender fluid, gender non-binary and trans people, not to mention the intersections between them. Regulators are starting to focus on this wider group. And I think the overall message is diversity matters. Diversity is probably on the whole a good thing. Let's stick with this for a moment. The main point today, of course, is around the inclusion of women in the upper ranks of companies and in boardrooms. But diversity of all kinds matters. Not to mention that the ideas and definitions around gender, well, they've changed since 2009 when MSCI published its first Women on Boards report. As Olga pointed out, It's not necessarily binary representation, male or female. I think we as a society becoming much more open in, um, you know, the concept of non-binary identification and uh, potentially other definitions of, of, of gender. So the conversation about the gender split is becoming a little bit more complex, as well as the targets that we're aiming to reach. And the research process itself becoming much more challenging. I don't think we can 
rely on analysts just uh, opening a web page and looking into the composition of the board, uh, looking at the pictures and maybe descriptions and names of the directors and assume their gender. We need to rely on the corporate disclosure much more and to see how those individuals identify themselves to establish um, the, the gender. This complexity? It's starting to make its way into that regulation that Tia and Olga talked about. The other important findings that we're seeing in the last years is the sign of the regulators playing much more active role in setting the targets for the gender diversity on boards. In particular, we noted in the current report, European Union commitment and targets to increase the, the threshold to 40% of directorship seats to be held by the underrepresented uh, minorities by 2026. So again, they're not talking explicitly about women, and they're talking about the underrepresented gender more broadly. Are regulations the way to get it done? I do think that regulation can be a impetus for companies that don't otherwise um, have the senior leader perspective that diversity is a good thing. So if you do not accept that um, the positives coming out of a more diverse board or a more diverse senior leadership team um, outweigh the difficulty in potentially having to change your strategies, having to um, do something intentional around developing your, your pipeline, having to be intentional around creating opportunities for um, all in the company to succeed and thrive on a more equal footing, then you might need um, regulation to to spur on the what we would consider to be the activity that you need to get a certain result. But I don't I don't agree that regulation is the only um, tool or even a necessary tool in, in all cases. Okay, I know I took us a bit off track there. We were talking about why having more women in senior positions is so important and the value that can bring to an organization. I've worked in a number of countries across the globe, so you know perhaps there's a perspective there to, to share in terms of the evolution right with respect to gender diversity. So I started my career, you know, more than a couple of decades ago back in Mumbai, India. And I, I was one of the seventh employees to join ICSA Prudential, which is one of the largest banks in India in the life insurance business. Um, I actually had a woman CEO as my manager who ran the group that I was a part of, right, strategic initiatives and reporting to the CEO, who, by the way, was actually also a woman. The organization was effectively a, a startup, right? So it was a very challenging environment to work in. But my CEO was known for her incredible prowess leading startups to success. And I, I think she also had a very high EQ. But while I had incredible female leadership who set the right tone from the top um, and, and you know tried to organize the right culture, the rest of the firm didn't always embrace women in the way that you would have hoped, right? And so there was, there was a good amount of mediocrity across the board and so in, you know, all in all, I'd say there was clearly gender inequality simply in everyday interactions and work. And if that was my experience at a top-notch bank with an incredible focus on empowering and rewarding female talent, then I imagine it was actually much worse for other women in less fortunate positions that I, than I was. Now, of course, this is over, you know, two decades ago, but there was also some gender disparity in London and in New York, Wall Street, where I had, you know, where I've spent several years of my career. 
I do think a lot has changed, though. In the last seven to ten years, I actually see several more women in C-suite posi- positions, which I think is a very encouraging fact. And, you know, applying that to State Street, right, we are leaders in this space, and I think we really walk the talk. It was not always like this. It was heavily dominated, right, by, by males. But in recent years, we have made great strides, and now we have more and more women in leadership roles across the firm. Top roles across the firm are well distributed, in my mind, between men and women, right? And of course, we have, um, you know, most recently hired a woman CEO to run SSGA globally, State Street Global Advisors. Again, you know, to bring data in here, a McKinsey Women in Workplace 2021 study found that employees with women managers are more likely to say that their managers, in fact, supported them and helped them. 31% provided emotional support versus 19%, you know, with respect to the, the male statistic there. I think when you look at an organization that has women in senior management positions, you should see an overall positive result from a talent attraction and retention perspective. As this, this sort of um, clearly demonstrates that there's a path for women to progress their, their careers at, at an organization. It also supports an organization's public commitment to gender equality an organization that has more than a token few women in senior leadership positions is sending a really strong signal to prospective and current uh, female employees. I think the message is that not only are you wanted here, but you'll be developed here, you'll be supported through your career here, you'll be celebrated as a leader here. These are promises that many organizations make in order to attract from the widest possible talent pool. So on a really practical level, Having um, you know more senior women around can have a very very real implication for a company's culture. Again, because of lived experience, that could mean that a manager's style, their way of giving feedback, a focus on development strategies. This might sound somewhat controversial, right? But according to Harvard Business Review, you know women score higher than men in most leadership skills, specifically. Research shows that, you know, women are seen as more ethical, empathetic, and are able to work out compromises. And women tend to be more compassionate and are socialized at a young age, right, to cooperate um, and collaborate. And I think the pandemic did that, where women leaders demonstrated their ability, you know, to manage conflict and, and increase cohesion. I recognize we have spent a fair bit of time on the reasons why having women on boards as well as in seats of corporate power matters. We've done so because every reason highlights why this is so important, not just for the women themselves, and not just for society, but for investors as they evaluate companies across sectors and across geographies. Now, the other part of the equation is the how. Which type of approaches signal that a company may be on the right track? First and foremost, it's important that there's clarity and executive accountability at the top of the company, that growing the next generation of leaders is a shared responsibility. It is not the or should not be the sole obligation of the person who happened to bring that talent into the organization. The second thing I would mention is that it should never be left only to the female leaders to nurture and support um, new talent that is female that you're trying to grow and encourage to stay at the company and create a long-term career. 
women leaders will often volunteer and lean into that charge, but there will usually be more people available than the than the women who were available to to do that support and we and we definitely need to have uh, an approach where we're leaning on male allies to do the right thing and and be really intentional about the development track for uh, employees once you've brought them into the into the company. Um, mentorship is something that a lot of companies use that can be a very effective tool. Um, it can actually be something that is done from a lack of formality, so you don't need to have a a specific a specific formal mentorship program to have good mentoring results. Um, but mentorship comes to me in that category of inclusive leadership behaviors, where you want executives to um, to to behave in a way that means that the environment is overall benefiting from a more inclusive style and that brings in um, women and other uh, people of other diverse identities as well as people that don't necessarily identify as diverse. I also think being really clear and specific around uh, sponsorship and what that looks like is um, a tactic and a strategy that, that, that we use and that I think is quite effective and by sponsorship, what I mean is you have identified high performers um, in your organization whom you would like to ensure are giving um, the opportunity to take on new assignments, to take on stretch assignments, to work across teams, and who are really given the support to have time that they spend doing that that's outside of their, uh, their their normal obligations and responsibilities or is supported in addition to what they're already uh, involved in. It can be a very strategic uh, way to ensure that you are consistently developing your, your talent and your, your pipeline um, and really aggressively pushing um, people from one uh, stage of development to the other in a way that that you would not have if you were sort of um, not paying attention and not, not acting with intentionality. At MSCI, that's the way we view it. Um, development equity, ensuring that people have opportunities to meet with and have um, learnings from their peers and senior leaders at the company. Um, that's also another strategy that, that we've used that we think is is very effective and also allows for senior leaders to have more of a window and perspective on what it is that their um, female talent is looking for, what what is it that needs to be addressed or you know reviewed in the culture that might increase their ability to to bring their full selves and actually uh, ensure that they are really maximizing the, their potential. It takes a lot of energy to maintain momentum around this issue, which is actually something Tia spoke about to us last year. So when I had the chance, I asked her how the battle against diversity fatigue was going. Diversity fatigue is is still a real concept that many organizations struggle with and and uh, lots of CDOs, chief diversity officers talk about when we get together and, and round tables and and, and share some of the challenges of, of keeping uh, going with the with the struggle. When I speak to the board, 
um, about every quarter about our strategies and how we're advancing, um, I get the questions often around, um, is our executive team showing uh, their support? They're, they are deeply interested in, in understanding whether um, the, the executive team continues to be as available and as, and as dedicated as they had been when I was hired. And I think it's actually quite telling uh, to have a board that, first of all, is that engaged on this topic, but also to have a senior leadership team for whom the concept of diversity uh, fatigue is really not part of their vocabulary. The focus that I have seen, the way we continue to tie executive compensation to diversity progress, uh, the way we continue to see our efforts to ensure pay equity, when looking at very deep you know, structural um, issues around diversity, uh, this is the way MSCI uh, attacks this, this issue and the way we mean to um, ensure that the progress that we make is progress that we will keep. Progress that really means we've changed the culture, we've moved uh, the organization to a place where not only diverse people, but all members of the organization will stay and thrive. And what about investors? Are they showing signs of fatigue? Gender lens investing is an impact investment strategy which deliberately integrates gender analysis into investment analysis and decision making. And over the years, it's garnered increased global attention in recent years as investors really seek out new ways to bring new dimensions right to the nature of their investments. Morgan Stanley Wealth Management recently ran this survey, and according to them, large percentages of high net worth investors said it is important that companies they invest in have policies in place to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion, and that stood at 67%. And also hire and promote employees of diverse backgrounds at 66%, and have people of diverse backgrounds in leadership positions, right, at 63%. So clearly there is, you know, some data at least out there that, you know, suggests that this is actually a particularly important topic. We've heard today about how an ever-growing percentage of companies have reached what Olga called the tipping point of 30% women on boards. We also heard how EU regulators are setting the bar at 40%. Could we be headed for 50%? 50% women representation on board is certainly not unrealistic. And we've seen quite a lot of companies uh, meet that threshold already and surpass that as well. Um, in our analysis, we do include it in our projections, just for the sake of reference. And the the date at which point we can see the 50% women representation on board is actually not that far ahead. Uh, it, we, we can talk about somewhere around 2035, 2040, depending on the rate and the progress of the inclusion. But um, it is certainly on the horizon. That's all for this week. A big thank you from Joe, Phil, and me to Olga, Shweta, and Tia, and to all of you for listening. You can read the full Women on Boards report on MSCI.com. Just follow the link at the bottom of this episode's page. Until next time, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.